Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Hey everyone, David Fortney. Welcome to the 2022 edition of the DC Insider Podcast. Really glad to be back with you. And of course, I've got both Bert and Nita with me. Bert, how you doing? Pretty well, David. It's nice to welcome the new year with you all. Sure is. And Nita, how are you? I'm uh, doing great. We don't have snow, but we're supposed to get some Thursday. This is uh, that time of year, as we uh, were reminded out here in Virginia, uh, where they just turned the Interstate 95 off for about 36 hours. That was a little rough. Well, let me ask you, before we talk about what's going on, it is it is really great to be back on the podcast, but what about this time of year where we have our New Year's resolutions and are going to do all sorts of wonderful things in the next 12 months? Bert, do you got any resolutions? I'm keeping it simple, David. Staying alive. <laughs> Good for you. How about Nita? You? Well, I would like to be able to get out and go somewhere and do some things this year, uh, which we didn't do much of last year. So my goal is to, is to avoid COVID and go travel. I'm kind of setting the bar at the same level. I want out of my house, but I don't want to get sick to do it. So... Well, I know all of us are boosted, and for those employers out there wondering, our firm, we do have a mandatory vaccination policy, and that includes everyone being fully boosted as soon as they're eligible to do so. So we uh, are trying very hard, all of us individually and collectively, to be safe and healthy as possible. Well, this is an exciting time because although we do talk about COVID a good bit, the federal agencies it looks like in 2022, we're going to actually start getting on board, implementing uh, the administration's agenda. And that's pretty exciting. That's our bread and butter. And that's the sweet spot that we want to focus on. But of course, the first stop, we just like we always seem to do at this point, we need to get an update on COVID. And Bert, that OSHA rulemaking yeah. and some of those other rules, that's in the courts primarily, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And interestingly, the judicial decisions are going to have a real impact on future federal regulation. But first, let me just do an update on the status of the federal mandates. The OSHA ETS, the federal contractor, and the CMS, that's the uh, Medicaid-funded health workers, executive orders, they're still in limbo. Some are in place, some are in place in half the country, others are entirely enjoined, but the Supreme Court will hear arguments on whether or not to stay or to keep the stay on the ETS and on the CMS mandates on January 7th. The pundits predict that it's possible that the CMS mandate will go forward because of the nature of the underlying law, but that the ETS will probably be stayed and set for argument on the underlying legal issues, which are executive authority, statutory limits, but frankly, that's not going to be till later in the term, which means that for most employers, the uncertainty will continue and there will be additional litigation in the states and in the federal courts. So I wish I could give you more certainty, but uh, right now we're just hanging fire 
hope the Supreme Court gives us some indications. But for now, we're just going to wait to see how these legal battles are fought. Okay, I think that's right. And this certainly represents kind of the high watermark for OSHA's rulemaking. And there's a lot more detail in that. But I want to make sure that we spend some time on some of the other agencies, because towards the end of 2021, which all of us are glad to have behind us, but we did spend a podcast and we unpacked the regulatory agenda. And recall, we talked about that as that's the to-do list. That's what the agencies say in terms of new regulations. Here's what we plan to do. And that is now beginning to take shape. We're actually seeing that the agencies are implementing that. And I want to spend a little bit of time going through that so we can make sure that people are up to date because there have been some developments very recently. But first, what about the budget? We need money to make the wheels turn. What's going on with the budget? Well, David, it's really important. So at the end of last year, there was a big fight in Congress over whether they were going to fund the federal government moving forward. And what they finally came up with was enough of a deal where the federal government is being funded at the fiscal year 2021 levels, which is substantially lower than where they want to be funded. That runs until February 18th, at which point we will have yet another probably fight over whether they're going to continue the continuing resolution, as they call it, or are they going to actually get a budget in place? Until they get a budget in place, David and Bert, there's a limitation on what these agencies can do because the Trump administration was not nearly as interested in giving money to agencies that we spend a lot of time with. For example, it's $105 million for OFCCP under the Trump budget, but $201 million under the proposed Biden budget. So getting the budget in is going to impact all the things we're about to talk about the agencies want to do. That's interesting, Nita, because typically when you have a change in administration, the first nine months up till October 1, which is when that federal fiscal year happens, the new administration has to work under the prior administration's budget and their priorities to some degree. But typically, starting October 1, they get their new budget, reflects their priorities and any additional funding they may want. Here, the Biden team is now going to lose at least three months, maybe more, of what would be effectively their second year in implementing their changes and still working under what they believe is a very reduced budget, very anemic budget to go forward with. So that's important because uh, like money does make it happen and we'll see how that works. That will be one that rests with Congress and need we say more, that's impossible to predict on that. Well, let's hone in. So that's kind of the overlay Agencies still working under old budgets, very reduced versus what Biden wants to give them. Let's unpack some of the key agencies. And Bert, I think we should start with wage hour. I mean, honestly, that's the one that touches everyone. I think wage hour and in some part NLRB, we're seeing coordination for the first time since the Obama administration. And they're both focusing. They both independently but contemporaneously announced that they were going to revise the joint employer and independent contractor regulations. And it's extraordinarily important because the common intent of both agencies, and you don't need money to do plans and write regs, they want to expand the definition of employee. And the reason that's so critical, remember, is that only employees can join unions, can get overtime, can get other statutory protections. So by expanding the definition of employee, 
They will expand the potential for union organizing, for expanded liability for workplace violations by franchisors and other joint employers. But there's even more when you think about how important independent contractors and joint employment is in the U.S. These changes go far beyond Uber and far beyond unions. This will have a huge impact on the workplace and on the economy. Just think about it. It will alter, I think, the way current business models work and not just for franchisers. It'll change how you use contract labor. It'll change how you schedule work. It'll change how you organize your overtime budget. It'll change how and to whom you give benefits. All of this is implied, and it's going to take some time because the regulation process is time-consuming, but this is so important and will have such a huge impact that you ought to keep your eye on it. I know we will, and we'll try to keep you informed. That's really true. I mean, every single employer in the country on every aspect of their workforce-related operation will be impacted by these changes across the board. But, you know, one of the other key things, the Biden team had to make a political decision on whether it would renominate its nominations, those nominees that weren't confirmed, they expired under the rules of the Senate. So to be reconsidered or to continue to be considered, they had to be renominated. One of the most controversial nominees is David Weil. And Weil is with the Wage and Hour Division, uh, the head of that. And at least as of last fall, Weil could not even generate a full support from the Democrats, much less the Republicans. He was a real lightning rod. I was kind of surprised that they went back to Weil. But assuming they do, boy, is he is going to double down on those changes that Bert just walked us through on joint employer big time. You know, the only problem that seems to me that Weil has is that the problems with his confirmation may have the unintended consequence of delaying the changes that he wants to put in place. Correct. That we will have to see. Well, what else is going on in wage hour, Anita? So one of the big issues that has gone around and around has been, and it comes out of California, is mandatory arbitration of certain types of claims. And there's a very important case that's going to the Supreme Court about a Southwest rent supervisor and whether her claims for overtime are covered by an exemption to the Federal Arbitration Act. This act covers not just employees, but it also covers independent contractors. So the Supreme Court decision of allowing people to be exempted from arbitration, and that's transportation workers, the Supreme Court said it's narrowly defined, but they haven't said who is covered. And the cases around the country are all over the map. We have Seventh Circuit cases that say this ramp loader is covered, the supervisor. We have a Fifth Circuit case that says they're not covered. So Southwest Airlines, which is the airline covered by the Seventh Circuit case, has taken it to the Supreme Court. This is also going to impact potentially gig workers because there are some cases involving Amazon drivers, and it all has to do with interstate commerce. But a long story short, another attack on or another approach to try and cover gig workers with protections that are currently only available to those who are employees, as we say. Quite true, and it's one of the issues that is also being pursued by the agency that everybody has thought was moribund, but is suddenly back in the center of things, and that's the National Labor Relations Board. Unlike other agencies of the government, this has a unified and focused leadership, and they intend to be aggressive. 
they've announced their intent, the, both the general counsel and the Democratic board majority, of reversing many of the decisions and actions of the Trump board, including employee handbooks, which is really about employee conduct. They want to increase union access for organizing purposes. They want to recognize what they call micro units, that is to say bargaining units carved out of the workplace. They want to reinstall quickie elections. They've announced their intent to increase monetary penalties for violations of labor law and on and on and on. And they have the votes to do it and they have the leadership to do it. So the NLRB, which has been out of everybody's vision for years, is returning to the center of workplace law. And I think we all ought to pay attention to what that agency does in the future. I think it's important to also point out that what we are seeing is a lot of union organizing in media and tech companies, which we have not seen in the past, and how that rolls out. And, you know, micro units are going to be really important in that context. And the board is also being very activist around people being terminated because they are labor activists or other uh, being stifled because they are making claims that have to do with terms and conditions of employment. And so employers who are not union organized need to be careful under this new world order. You know, even though uh, we've talked about the PRO Act, that was the uh, proposed bill that was sort of the Christmas tree to give organized labor everything they wanted, uh, including uh, significant amendments to the National Labor Relations Act and, and other changes, even in the absence of that legislative change occurring, there will continue to be, I think, these fundamental changes by this board and the redefining employees in hand in glove with wage hour and the other agencies is going to be a critical, critical component. It's pretty clear, David, that the Biden administration determined that they will try to achieve through the regulatory and executive branch what they can't get in Congress, such as the PRO Act. Agreed. Well, one of the areas that has received a lot of attention, of course, is federal contractors. And Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill, all of this is about much more funding, new programs, and new projects for federal contractors. And along being a federal contractor comes, among other obligations, the EEO and affirmative action obligations that are enforced by the Labor Department's Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. Obviously, a marketing person did not develop that agency's name, which is why we call it OFCCP but they enforce the federal contractor obligations. They've opened up a whole new approach that is going to be potentially a game changer in terms of federal contractors' compliance. And this, again, a relatively small agency potentially now is going to be able to punch up a great deal, even if it doesn't get that 200% budget increase that the administration requested. Now, in this instance, under this new portal, contractors are going to have to submit electronically a certification whether they are in compliance. It's a yes, no gate. And in order to certify, you have to go through, not only do I have an AAP, but do I comply with dozens and dozens and dozens of regulations in terms of record keeping, how you post jobs, how you deal with promotions, workforce data, and changes. In order to do that, there are a series of legal requirements. Are you a contractor? Which units are subject to these obligations? Do you, in fact, comply so that you can certify, subject to the penalties of perjury, that you are, in fact, in compliance? And I just note that is a step that we have been working with clients. We've developed a tool that helps address that. 
very easy self-audit that we direct and provide input so the contractors with a level of confidence, because it's not to be taken lightly when you have to submit a certification to the federal government in order to assess whether you're in compliance. Those obligations you have to register by the end of March and you have to certify by June. And this is not only for prime contractors, but it's for subcontractors at all levels. Yes, and that's part of what the government wants to know. They don't even know who's on the roster of being subcontractors. So much as we file our income tax returns every year and the government kind of keeps tab of things, that's the new world order that's going to be introduced and followed by this OFCCP. But that isn't all that's going on with OFC, is it, Nita? No, and I think it's important. We've probably pointed this out before, but I think it's important to point out again. Jenny Yang, the current director of OFCCP, was the chair of EEOC under the Obama administration. In the Obama administration, she took the lead to roll out the pay data collection. She is now at OFCCP. She and Charlotte Burroughs, the chair of the EEOC, are very close. Expect a lot of activity around pay data. And the first thing they announced was OFCCP will accept the pay data that was collected by EEOC for 2017-2018 and going forward once we get a new pay data collection, which we expect. And so pay data is going to be a big deal. The other thing, David, I wanted to mention, and we talked a bit last time about the various proposals that are out there. I think the big ones that people need to watch is that she is looking, and by that I mean Jenny Yang, to revise the service and supply regulations for Executive Order 11246 which is the big affirmative action women and minorities, they have not been revised in over 20 years. I remember, I hate to say this, I remember when they were revised last time in 2000. But there are a lot of changes since then, and you can see the difference between the 503 and VEVA regs and the EEO 11246 regs. So the biggest thing there, and David, I'd like your thoughts about this, they're looking to probably move from establishments where you have a plan by basically plants to an overall affirmative action process, which we call a FAP, a functional affirmative action plan. And I think that would be by far the biggest change, David, don't you? I do too. I mean, the model that currently is used, establishment, that's a bricks and mortar concept. And that's so, as they say, last century. I mean, work was traditionally (laughs) done in a building at a location, at a site. Well, now, As everyone knows, work is done remotely in so many different ways, and it's often configured by function. You've got the sales department, the marketing group, et cetera, various groups. And so what the government is really talking about is the ability to more accurately look at how workforce decisions are made, how hiring, compensation decisions, which tend to be by broader organizational units. Now, for contractors, This is not necessarily a good change because it will result in larger numbers, larger data sets, and potentially enable the government to allege that there are flags or disparities and require more effort to justify what those differences are. But I think this change is inevitable. And objectively, if I were at OFCCP, I'd be doing the same thing, honestly, to to see if we could update it. But what about the sibling agency? OFCs, but one, that's the federal contractors, but there's little redundancy here. There's EEOC, but that's how the government's set up. Bert, what's going on over there? Well, you know, for people who've been in this profession for a while, we all look to the EEOC 
as kind of the engine for new programs, new litigation, new ideas, new enforcement. And right now, if the NLRB is unified and ready to act, the EEOC is kind of the opposite. And waiting seems to be the key word that I would use to describe. They're waiting for a Democratic majority, which won't happen till midsummer. They're waiting for the NAS report on pay data collection so they can try to get new pay data collected. They're waiting to implement the executive order on the national strategy on gender equity and equality. There just seem to be in a period of like waiting for Godot. They're waiting to have a majority to start to act. But we have to remember that it's already announced where they're going. Retaliation and gender equity have been announced repeatedly by the administration and by the EEOC as their key points. Put your seatbelts on because I think they're going to be ready to move, certainly by the end of the summer. And, you know, there's one other thing that's hanging out there, David, is that under the Obama administration, there were harassment guidelines that were put in place after the EEOC task force rolled out. Those are still kind of hanging fire. And once Charlotte Bros has three Democratic votes, you may see those go back to OMB to be approved, you know, sometime in the next six or eight months. I think that's right. Be a much friendlier environment. One of the other initiatives that EEOC has focused quite a bit on, and is though it's not quite clear what they're going to do with it, is artificial intelligence, AI. We've talked about before is definitely an issue that's going to receive a lot of attention from a lot of quarters during this year. And EEOC has said they're going to be part of that. They're going to have these listening sessions, they're going to convene some hearings to start collecting information. Commissioner Keith Sonderling, who has been a guest on our podcast and has done an excellent job, he's not waiting for a majority to get there. He has been out spearheading the effort of talking about AI, the implications of AI in systemic claims under Title VII, and presenting some very, I think, thoughtful efforts and which he shared on some of our earlier uh, podcast discussions. Also, another trend on AI, not purely EEOC, the states. You know, as the federal government doesn't do as much on some of these points, these developing points, some of the states are saying, we're not waiting. New York's the most recent example. New York this week has a new law coming online that will require when AI is used, that it be evaluated in advance to assess whether it has adverse impact. Trust me, that is extremely difficult to do, and the New York law may prove somewhat challenging in terms of compliance, but it does represent a genuine focus, expanded focus, and it will touch on many, many employers. So we have, that's just another lane in what I kind of look at this fire hose of AI that's starting to develop here. Anything else on EEOC? Nita? Two quick things. One, EEOC did hire 450 new employees, so they'll be looking for work for them. And two, they are continuing to provide guidance around COVID. Most recently, when is COVID a disability, uh, which is not really super difficult. I mean, they just walk through the usual ADA compliance, but they are trying to provide employers with guidance on that. That guidance doesn't even require a vote which is why that's one of the few things they can go forward with without a vote by the commissioners. Bert? Yeah, there's kind of a subtext that I want us all to notice. I mentioned it earlier, and that's greater coordination among the agencies. The EEOC is clearly working with the CDC on this guidance, just like the NLRB is working with Wage and Hour. EEOC is working with OFCCP. We're getting some kind of coordination of a kind we haven't seen in a very long time. 
And for those of, in the business community, please watch out. There'll be more regulation. Agreed. All right. So having unpacked uh, initially the regulatory agenda, we now see the agencies starting to rumble a little bit and get moving. We anticipate that after everyone gets the snow shoveled here in Washington, that that's going to continue at a, an accelerating <laughs> pace. And so over the next 30 days, I want to just go around the horn quickly and see who's watching what. Bert, I'll start with you. Oh, Supreme Court, we got to hear the arguments and hear their decisions on vaccine mandates. They will have an incredible impact on the entire COVID universe. I'm looking at what Majority Leader Schumer, currently Majority Leader Schumer, is going to do in terms of modifying the Senate rules, taking the vote not only on voting rights, but on the nominee, uh, Professor Weil, who we referenced earlier in the discussion, as well as the agency budgets. All of that is going to be resolved by what happens on the Senate rules, including the filibuster and some of these other procedural points that are gonna determine what, if anything, Congress is able to do. I think we're gonna know the answer in the next 30 days. And finally, I think everybody needs to watch the regulatory agenda and your agencies. They are going to start rolling out doing work, regardless of whether they have all of the nominees they would like. They need to show they've done something between now and the midterms in November. I agree, because kind of like, yikes, we've got 10 months to get everything done. <laughs> so, all right. That's right. Let's leave it at that for this one. Listen, we're, again, just so excited uh, to be with everyone again in 2022. We hope everyone's safe, and we really appreciate everyone listening to the podcast. Also want to share with you, we have a series of webinars coming up over the first quarter where we're going to really unpack some of these specific agency developments, drill down into those, jump in and join them, because we've also got some takeaways for you there and a lot of discussion by our subject matter experts. It's gonna be exciting, and thanks again for joining us. Thanks everyone, we look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.